Hey guys, it's Heaven from Just a Grown True Crime, and today I'm going to be telling you about this app called Anchor. It helped me start my podcast, and it can help you start yours. Anchor is a free app that lets you use it from your phone or your computer. So if you want to do it on the go, and you want to just record, you can record one. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so much more to get your own podcast out there. You can make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you want in just one podcast. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I did. What are you waiting for? Hello, my true crime gurus. You already know, it's Heaven from Just a Grown True Crime. And tonight, we are talking about 10 10 Urban Legends. I'm sorry, we're doing, yeah, you know, we're going to do 10. We could do, we could squeeze one more in as long as it's not long. Um... I was going to upload this yesterday, but I decided to watch Clickbait on Netflix. And I got to, I watched the first episode and it was actually really, really good. And I was like, hmm, you know what? We can upload tomorrow and then I'm going to upload, so today, Thursday for me, whatever day you listen to this be your day. And then tomorrow I'm also going to upload our um, murder person and all the papers that I wrote down of the serial killers I was going to do in my urban legends. I must have accidentally threw them out, so I'm going to be spending time rewriting them. Um, But luckily I have them saved on my computer, so we can just do that. So we're going to be talking about 10 urban legends. We're going to talk about Dudley Town. Arizona Skinwalkers, The Thirteenth Child, The Licked Hand, Bunny Man, The Hook or Like the Hook Man, The Spider Bite, Polybysis, Capricabra, and Changelings. Because they're very interesting. So, we're going to start with Dudley Town as soon as I get this set up. All right. So, let's begin. Some of these are long and some of these are short. Okay? So, Dudley Town is one of, you know, the most re-owned damn places in Connecticut. And it's abandoned and it's allegedly the cursed village of Dudley Town. But as with many dark places, Dudley Town wasn't always like that. Much like Connecticut, settlers came to the area around what is now a quiet little town of Cornwall in the mid-18th century. And that includes the first Dudleys, who came from England via Guilford to the Lynchfield Hills in 1747. They helped create what became a thriving community known as Owlsbury, primarily fueled through the region's growing iron industry. Homes were built and the land was farmed, iron was forged, and the town grew and prospered and all was well. Or so it seemed. Some attribute the demise of the town to multiple mundane factors, the depletion of the farmland and decline of the area's iron iron industry (laughs) the national the natural progression of younger americans headed west to settle to new lands etc of course there were others who simply believed that the dudley clan was cursed as an inordinate number of dudleys supposedly came to ultimate ends and that curse extended to the village they helped find or found. 
Whatever the cause, Dudleys died off and the settlement's population continued to dwindle until about the turn of the 20th century. When the last residents finally gave up and abandoned what was left of this town, the surrounding forest slowly swallowed up the homes and buildings and today it only remnants of what have been and there you know are a few crumbling foundations and creepy empty cellars oh and the curse of the deadlies we can't forget that so this story goes that for anybody who has tried to live in dudley town has come into some serious misfortune over the years there has allegedly been everything from suicides to demonic possessions and all the hysterical drama in between and to and I say sign me up we all know I like demonic stuff <laughs> the Warrens we all know who they are if you watch the conjuring they are a paranormal they were I'm sorry you know were the people who did the conjuring houses and they were these crazy paranormal investigators but they famously recorded a Halloween special from Dudley Town in the early 1970s declaring it officially demonically possessed which essentially opened the supernatural floodgates since then it has been home to all sorts of alleged paranormal experiences with visitors witnessing all manner of spirit and phantom as well as having unsettled feelings of dread and fear as you might expect the area has also drawn the attention to those enthralled with dark forces and demonic rituals I'm all for dark forces but I mean there's something about rituals that I just don't want to do plus they also had a healthy number of amateur ghost busters and teenagers simply searching for trouble in short, it became a damnation destination. Of course, much of the mythology around the curse of Dudley has been debunked by a Dudley descendant, no less. The Rev. Gary P. Dudley. But why would anyone, you know, let that get in the way of a good spooky story? So they say, you know, there's actually no curses other... No curses other worldly events or dark tragedies in the actual history of the town but you know you can go um a person who went her name is kate she visited back in the day and she said she didn't actually have any unusual experiences but note she did find a number of old foundations and a few odd bumps in the ground they also say you know you can't go the remains of Dudley Town are actually now on private property owned by Dark Entry Forest Association, which is a weird name, who vigorously discourage all visitors. And it is heavily patrolled by local and state police who will not hesitate to arrest and prosecute any trespassers, which sucks because I kind of want to go. But I don't want to go to jail. So that is Dudley Town. Next, we are going to talk about I gotta do this in order. Hold on. Okay, next we're going to talk about skinwalkers. Um, I tried to find Arizona skinwalkers when I looked it up, but I guess they are like Nav Navajo skinwalkers, which, fun fact, if you've watched Supernatural, you guys all, well, they're shapeshifters, or they call, I guess you can call them skinwalkers, because they do the same thing. So, this is my Supernatural thing, where I'm like, huh, maybe this isn't false, right? So, in the Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a, is a type of harmful witch who has the ability to turn into, possess, or disguise themselves as an animal. Supernatural doesn't do that. They just, you know, shapeshift in different bodies to other people. Alright, so this witch is called, I'm going to brutal this name, <laughs> Yi Nadalushi? 
by the Navajo. That's what that sounds good. Which actually translate which translates to with it he goes on all fours. This is just one of several types of Navajo witches and it's considered the most volatile and dangerous. Awesome. For the Navajo people, witchcraft is just another part of their spirituality and one of the ways of their lives, which, you know, you guys do you, Navajo. As such, witchcraft has been a long part of their culture, their history, and their traditions, and witches exist alongside humans, and they are not supernaturals. All right. I can get behind that. The Navajo also believe that there are places where their powers of good are powers of both good and evil are present and those powers can be harnessed <coughs> for either. Medicine men utilize their powers to heal and aid members to their communities while those who practice Navajo witchcraft seek to direct the spiritual forces to cause harm or misfortune to others. This type of Navajo witchcraft is known as the witchery way, which uses human corpses in various ways, such as tools from the bones and concoctions that are used to curse, harm, or, you know, to kill intended victims. Nothing wrong with that. The knowledge of these powers are passed down from the elders through some generations. The Navajo are part of a large culture area that includes the Pebloa people, Akchi, Hopi, Utes, and other groups, which I probably pronounced all of them wrong, that have their own versions of skinwalkers, but each includes a male-violent witch capable of transforming itself into an animal. Among these tribes, there are a a number of stories and descriptions that have been told throughout throughout the years by skinwalkers. About the skinwalker, sorry. So, let's let's bring in a couple, shall we? Sometimes these witches involve from living their lives as respected healers or spiritual guides who later choose to use their powers for evil. They can either be male or female. They are often more male, which doesn't surprise me. They walk freely among the tribe during the day and they secretly transform under the cover of night in order to become a skinwalker. You know, if you want to be one, anyone who's interested, he or she must be initiated by a secret society that requires the evilest of deeds, the killing of a close family member, most often a sibling. What the hell? After this task has been completed, the individual then acquires supernatural powers, which then gives them the ability to shapeshift into animals. Most often, they are seen in forms of coyotes, wolves, foxes, cougars, dogs, and bears, but they can take shape of any animal. They wear the skins of the animals and they transform into hence the name skinwalker. Sometimes they are also they also wore animal skulls or antlers atop their heads, which brought them more power. They choose what animal they wanted to turn into depending on the abilities needed for that particular task, such as speed, strength, endurance, stealth, claws, teeth, and etc. They may transform again if they may transform again if they try to escape form um, from pursuers. Alright, so because of this Navajo Consider it taboo for its members to wear pelt of any predatory animal. However, sheepskin, leather, and buckskin are acceptable. So, how do they, uh, you know, do this? 
Skinwalkers are also, you know, able to take possession of human body, human victims. So this is where Supernatural comes in, right? If they lock eyes with them, but Supernatural is like that. They just see them and they're like, I want to be you, so I'm going to be you. No, they Oh, do they have to touch you? Okay, sorry. In Supernatural, they got to touch you. So, after taking control, the witch can make its victims do and say anything, and they won't think otherwise. That's creepy. I don't like that. Once they are shapeshifted shape the way that others can't could, they tell, tell that they were not real animals they were not a real animal is that their eyes are different than those of the animal instead their eyes are very human and when lights are shined on them they turn bright red alternatively when they are in human form their eyes look more like animals so the evil society of mm -hmm. witches mm -hmm. gather in dark caves or secluded places for several purposes to initiate new members plot their activities, harm people from a distance with black magic, and perform dark, um, you know, semoral rites. These ceremonies are similar to other tribal affairs, including dancing, feasting, rituals, and sand painting, but that sounds kind of cool, but were corrupted with dark uh, connotations. The evildoers are also said to engage in Ew. Necrophilia, which we all know what that is. Ew, babe. <laughs> With female corpses. Commit cannibalism. Incest and grave robberies. <coughs> During these gatherings, the skinwalkers... <laughs> yes, just a normal Friday night. That's how I'm going to be spending my Friday night tomorrow, guys. <laughs> During these gatherings, the skinwalkers shapeshift into their animal forms, or, you know, they just go about naked, wearing only beaded jewelry mm -hmm. or ceremonial paint. Mm -hmm. The leader of the skinwalker is usually an old man who is very powerful and a live and a long-lived skinwalker. Skinwalkers also have powers, including, you know, reading others' minds, controlling their thoughts and behavior causing diseases or illnesses, destroying property, or even death. Those who have talked about their encounters with these evil beings describing a number of ways to know if a skinwalker is near, they make sounds around homes such as knocking on windows, banging on walls, and scraping noises on the roof. If anything that happens to me, I just chalk that up to, you know, demonic stuff. That's me. On some occasions, they have been spied peering through windows. More often, they actually appear in front of vehicles in hopes of causing a serious accident. It is said that in addition to being able to shapeshift, the skinwalker is also known to control the creatures of the night, such as wolves and owls. And they... Um, also make them do its bidding. They are able to call up some spirits of the dead and reanimate the corpses to attack their enemies. Because of this, the Indians rarely ventured out alone. Which I can see. And there's so much more in this, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time. If you want to look at it, just you know, go to Lands of America. That's where I found my stuff. Next, we're going to talk about the 13th child, which was weird. So, on a dark, stormy night in 1735, something terrible happened in the Pine Barrens near Leeds Point. The thunder howled and the wind roared outside. Inside a small house, Mother Leeds was giving birth to her 13th baby. That's too many damn kids for me. I say no, no. No one knew for sure exactly what happened but people had lots of ideas mother Leeds actually said you know she wanted the baby to be the devil and guess what the baby was 
The baby was born with tail, a tail, wings, hooves, and it flew up the chimney. That baby looked normal, but then it changed, and they all, I guess it's referred to as the, um, you know, New Jersey Devil, I guess, from what I found. Because I was looking for stuff, and it kept bringing me to a movie. And I didn't want that. So, this is one of the most popular stories about how the devil is born. But there are also many others. A different story says that a town put a curse on a young girl who fell in love with a British soldier during the Revolutionary War. When she gave birth, it was the, new, it was the Jersey Devil. Another story says a gypsy cursed a girl because she didn't give the gypsy food. And the, ca the curse caused her to give birth to the New Jersey Devil. Locals in Pine Barrens call it the Leeds Devil. They say it has a horse's head, long legs with hooves, two short front legs, and bat wings. Alright, but no one knows how tall it is, and some people think it's six feet, and others, th others think it's only three or, f three or four feet tall. The devil has red glowing eyes, and it makes loud screeching sounds. It's very ugly, and people are terrified after seeing it. During the day, the devil lives in the wetlands, and at night, it comes out to scare anyone it meets, which I say, no, no. So, now we're going to talk about the licked hand. Doesn't sound, <coughs> doesn't sound scary, does it? Well, just wait till I read you this. So, a young girl was actually left home one night, only with her dog to protect her. On the news that night, they announced mm -hmm. that there was a serial killer. Oh, I just dropped my phone. On the news, they announced that a serial killer was on the loose in the area. So, before she goes to bed, she locks the doors and tries to lock all the windows. But the one basement one won't lock, and she decides to leave it unlocked. But she does lock the basement door and she decides to go to bed. Her dog takes its customary place under her bed. In the deep night, she awakens to a dripping sound coming from her bathroom. And the girl, who wakes up, you know, half awake, feels the comforting lick from her dog and falls back to sleep. She reawakens to the dripping sound. She reaches her hand down to the dog where she feels the reassuring lick. And then she goes back to sleep. Once more, she awakens to the dripping sound and she reaches for her hands. She reaches her hand down and she, you know, same thing. She feels the dog lick her hand. Now, curious about the dripping sound, she does get up slowly and she walks towards the bathroom. And the dripping sound gets louder as she approaches. She reaches to the bathroom and turns on the light. And she's greeted by a horrific sight. Hanging from the shower nozzle is her dog, trigger warning, with its throat slit open and its blood dripping into the bathtub. And then something on the bathroom mirror catches her eye as she turns around. Written on the wall in her dog's blood are the words, humans can lick too. Huh. I got chills just talking about that part right there. Oh, that's disgusting. I swear to God. Like, where were her parents? <laughs> How could you leave your a, a young girl home alone? I would never stay home alone. My parents say, hey, we're going to the bar. Cool, I'm sitting in the car. <laughs> uh, no, no. That's creepy. Ooh, I got I got goosebumps. Oh, no, no, no. My kids are never having a dog. All right. So we are going to be talking next about the Bunny Man. Northern Virginia's most gruesome urban legend. So it says on Halloween night, you know, don't go near the bridge in Clifton or you can get snuffed out by the Bunny Man. So under a bridge in Clochester Road in Fairfax County, 
listening to an Amtrak train speeding overhead. Some would say I put my life at risk right now, and not only by lingering near the railroad tracks, according to local lore. This bridge is one of the most dangerous locations in northern Virginia. Hang, in, hang around here at midnight on Halloween, and you can be butchered by the bunny man. So this person, um, the bridge is where this person met journalist Matt Blitz, and he heard about the bunny man legend as a teenager growing up in Fairfax County. As the story tells it, that in, ni that in 1904, there was an asylum not far from this bridge. Clifton residents didn't like the idea of mental patients near their new homes, so they ended up getting it shut down, and all the patients were taking, taken to a bus to Lorton Prison. Well, if they're mental, I don't think they need prison. They need another mental hospital. But the bus swerved and crashed, said the journalist. They were able to locate all the inmates that were on the bus except for one. The escaped mm -hmm. mental patient was named Douglas Griffin. After the crash, he disappeared. Weeks passed, and rabbit corpses began appearing in the woods. Douglas was apparently eating bunnies to stay alive, and this went on for a while. And then, on one Halloween night, a group of kids were hanging out around the bridge, and they reported seeing some sight of a bright light or an orb, and then a flash, and they'd all been strung up like the bunnies, gutted and hanging from this bridge. I should have said trigger warning, but I just read that when I told you about it. The missing mental patient was, of course, assumed to be the killer. As the rumor goes, if you come here on Halloween night at midnight, you'll end up just like those kids and bunnies, said the journalist. This all sounds unlikely. For one, there was never an asylum in Clifton. And for another, 1904 was an awfully early time for buses to be on the roads. But it's been said that every urban legend is based on a kernel of truth. And Brian Connolly is the guy who set out to find that truth. So, let's talk about Brian. He is an archivist of the Fairfax County government. And in the 1990s, he worked for the county's library system as a historian. And people kept coming in asking if the bunny man was real. And they got simply tired of having nothing to say or I don't know. So... Brian started digging and found what he calls Bunny Man's Legend Genesis event. And here's what he discovered. In 1970, a couple was parked in a driveway not far from the train overpass. When they had a terrifying encounter, some appeared very quickly. Oh, I'm sorry. Someone appeared very quickly, yelled something having to do with trespassing, and then they threw a hatchet at the car. That's what Brian said. They did not get a good look at this person. All they really got was he was dressed in white or light color, colored clothing and may or may not have something on his head. When the story made the papers that said something on his head, it became bunny ears. And from the archivist says... The story started to morph quickly. Within a few years, children were swapping stories about a man in a bunny suit chasing kids through the woods with a hatchet. But the version journalist that Matt's Blitz overheard involved a guy eating bunnies. Like a game of telephone, the story went from one person to another, taking on increasingly imaginative details. Today, the bunny, legend, the bunny man legend has traveled far beyond Fairfax County, there are Bunny Man t-shirts, Bunny Man beer, and a Bunny Man horror movie franchise. I've never heard about this until I googled Urban Legends. But as Brian's research on the true story of Bunny Man has circulated online and some refuse to believe some refuse to believe that he's actually telling the truth. There are some people out there that are convinced that the story as it is told is true, Brian says, 
and that myself and Fairfax, Fairfax County are trying to cover something up. While it's fun debunking the bunny man legend, Brian says it's even more fun to believe it. Right. So now we're going to talk about the legend of the hook or the hook man. We're going to bring back Supernatural because we all heard about that. I almost read the wrong thing. I almost got on the Supernatural Wick page where it told me about the episode. I'm like, nope, I don't need that. So this is a popular urban legend of the hook man. And it tells the story of a hooked-handed lunatic who escapes a local institution in Pennsylvania. The terrifying camp story began to circulate in the 1950s, and it has many variations, but the basic story has remained the same, give or take a few elements. And this is what I found. So the tale of Hookman starts with a young couple who goes for a drive and gets to about gets to know about the escaped Hookman on the radio. Later, the couple returns home to find a hook embedded in the back of their car. It is believed that Hookman kills innocent people, especially young couples, roaming around at night. I'm safe because I don't leave my house. That's great. Historians have been trying to find out the origin of the story for Hookman for many, many years. The mythical story became very popular among American teenagers by 1959, and it continued to expand into the 1960s. According to some writers and investigative journalists, the urban legend is linked to a few infamous murder cases, including the 1946 Tech Moonlight murders, which I don't know what that is, but I'm going to look that up as soon as I'm done. Folklorists have interpreted the long history of its legend in many ways, In 1960, the story was reprinted in the acclaimed advance column Dear Abby and referenced in various horror films ever since. A few lines from the column Dear Abby reads, A fellow and his date pulled into their favorite lover's lane to listen to the radio and do a little necking. I guess that's what they called sex back then? Okay. (laughs) The music was interrupted by an announcer who said there was an escaped convict in the area who had served time for multiple criminal charges and he was described as having a hook instead of a right hand. The couple became very frightened and drove away. The popular urban legend has been adapted into many films and television series. For example, in 1997 horror film, I Know What You Did Last Summer my favorite movie, and it features a killer stalking teenagers with a hook while the main characters gather around a campfire and recount the hook legend. Another one, another slasher film is called Lover's Lane in 1999, and it also features a killer who murders teenagers at Lover's Lane with the hook. And the popular TV show, which we were just talking about, Supernatural, Features a hookman as the villain in the seventh episode of the first season, where it is about that one is where a Christian girl believes in these morals and she believes that it, you know, she went on a date with a guy. He was trying to put the moves on her and he tried to push it and she said, Stop. And hookman comes and, you know, hangs him up from the tree. Then her friend tried to turn her into a party girl, and she didn't believe in that, so he killed her. And then her father, who is a, I think he was, what was he, babe, a pastor at the church? A pastor, he was having having an affair with a married woman who went to their church, and he came, and it's a great episode, guys. Also, author Alvin Schwartz used a version of the story in the 1981 collection of short horror stories for children, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. So there's that one. Next, we are going to be talking about a legend called the Spider Bite or Spiders in the Cheek. And this is like another scary story by that Alvin person that I found. 
One night a young girl was sleeping in her bed when a spider crawled across her face. Creepy. It stopped for a few minutes on her left cheek, then it went on its way. When she woke up the next morning and looked into a mirror, she noticed a red spot on her cheek. What is this? she asked her mother. It looks like a spider bite, her mother replied. It will go away, just don't scratch it. But soon the small red spot grew into a big red boil. The girl said, it's getting bigger, the mom said. Sometimes it happens, you know, it's just coming to a head. In a few days, the spot was larger. And the daughter says, look at it now. It hurts so much and it makes me look ugly. Her mom said, they'll have a doctor take a look at it. You know, maybe it's infected. But the doctor actually couldn't see the girl until the next day. And she said, thought, well, you know what, maybe a nice relaxing bath will help me. So she laid in the soaking warm water, and then suddenly the boil burst, and out poured a swarm of tiny spiders from the eggs of their mother that had laid in her cheek. How freaking terrifying. That's a no, no bueno for me, folks. Next, we're going to talk about a game. It's an urban legend of the government's mind-controlling arcade game. It is a twisted tale of Polybis, the world's most dangerous video game. Which, that sounds kind of interesting. So, this happened, you know, around in 1981 in Portland, Oregon. A dull digital glow bounced off the faces of teenagers who clutched joysticks and they immersed in the game. Tiny lines and dots danced or exploded with high-pitched beeps across them all, but one game cabinet, cabinet polybysis drew the longest lines. Gamers who have tried it couldn't stop playing it, and they began act, acting oddly, and they were nauseous, stressed, and had horrific nightmares. Others had seizures or attempted suicide. Many felt unable to control their thoughts, it was later, only later that they actually recalled how the game was serviced more than any other games. Men in black suits opened the machine every week, recorded its data, and left with no, with no interest in the coins. Soon after it appeared, the mysterious arcade game vanished without warning. It was taken by the men in black suits, leaving no record of existence. No record of existence. And if the government is listening to this, please do not come and find me. I'm just reading a, what I think is an urban legend. And, you know, that's what it says. That's the story, at least. This legend is one of the most biggest unsolved mysteries of the gaming world, though it is most conceded that the game never existed. But since it's an urban legend on gaming and conspiracy websites which we're gonna do some conspiracies because I love some conspiracy theories guys um and it was on the internet horror you know for like creepypasta and like all good stories and it's just basically kept alive by the fans which good on them but I you know if you scroll down you know, like I said, it was for Men in Black. So, I mean, that's pretty... It's pretty gnarly, I guess. Alright. Our last two. We are going to be talking about the Capricabras. If, I if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm not actually sure if I am. It's the surprising true story behind the blood-sucking mythical creatures. Normal, right? So, in 1995, Madeline Tolentio spotted an alien-like creature outside her home in Puerto Rico. Thus, the legend of the Capacabra began. Few legends have been as 
Velament insisted upon as the, you know, Capricabra, the famed enemy of livestock of the Americans, a blood-sucking creature allegedly the size of a small bear, sometimes with a tail often covered in scaly skin and a row of spines down its back. This thing has been a staple in Puerto Rico in Puerto Rican folklore for decades. Named after the first animals that were reported to have killed and drained in 1985, the capricabra literally means goat sucker in Spanish. The bloodthirsty creature supposedly moved on to chickens, sheep, rabbits, cats, and dogs. Hundreds of farm animals were ending up dead and bloodless, and people had no idea why. Probably this freaking thing. As soon as the word of the Puerto, the Puerto Rican farm animals broke, farmers in other countries began complaining of their own attacks. Animals in Mexico, Argentina, Chile, Colombia, and the United States were all dying similar gruesome deaths seeming with, seemingly with no explanation. So, let's talk about a skeptic investigates the Capo Sutra, cop, whatever. Before long, of the word of, you know, goat, what was it, goat sucker? Goat sucker reached Benjamin Bradford, an American writer and general skeptic of the goat sucker tales. Over the next five years, Benjamin would make it his life work either to track it down track down a living specimen or debunk the legend of the goat sucker once and for all. His years-long journey took him through forest, farmland across South America, in southwestern United States, until he finally found what he was looking for. Someone who had actually seen the goat sucker up close and personal. Her name was Madeline, and she had seen it through her window in her... Canovasa, a town of South Juan in 1995. A bipedal creature with black eyes, reptilian skin, and spines down its back, she claimed, was responsible for the animal attacks that were becoming so commonplace in the country. She said it hopped like a kangaroo and it reeked of sulfur, and to that I say it's a demon. Other people that Benjamin tracked down who claimed to have seen the goat sucker themselves corroborated her description, though some insisted the animal walked on four legs instead of two, and some said it had a tail, while others disagreed. But for many years, Ben's investigation went nowhere. I was, of course, initially skeptical of the creature's existence, he told BBC. At the same time, I was mindful that new animals have yet to be discovered. I didn't want to debunk or dismiss it. If the goat sucker was real, I wanted to find it. He's not calling it a goat sucker, but I'm calling it a goat sucker. So, soon another version of the goat sucker, or either a distant relative or an evolution, began to emerge. And this version was actually much easier to believe. In place of the reptilian scales covering its body, this new bloodsucker had smooth, hairless skin, and it walked on four legs, and it definitely had a tail, and it almost looked like a dog. I thought it was a dog. For years, the goat sucker were only the stuff of folklore and the internet, conspiracy theories. Then came the bodies. In the early 2000s, in Texas and elsewhere in the southern western United States, People started to find dead bodies resembling the goat sucker's description. Hairless, four-legged creatures with burnt-looking skin. About a dozen have turned up since then. Demons. Farmers and ranchers call the authorities having no idea what these creatures could have been. And it turns out the answer was pretty simple. They were mostly dogs and coyotes. The reason these animals would get identified as goat suckers is because they've They've lost their hair, owning a scaropotic mange, Ben explained. And that is where it's 
um, highly contagious, it's a highly contagious skin disease, fairly common in dogs, and it forces, it suffers to, suffers to itch away at mites, bar, burrowing under the skin. The skin ultimately, ultimately loses its hair and it becomes abnormally thick and the itching produces nasty looking scabs. A hairless, almost alien skin dog sounds like a goat sucker. Oh man, you know what I was going to say? It kind of reminds me of like a naked rat. Rat. But bigger. Well, guys, and that... That's basically the goat sucker. And we got one more that I decided to throw in. And it is called the changelings. Alright. Ah, this is from Supernatural too. <laughs> I watched one. It was so good. So Changeling in European folklore is a deformed or embolic offspring. We'll see. This one says of fairies or elves. Substituted by the... Um, they substitute them like for a human infant. According to legend, the abducted human child are given to the devil or used to strengthen the fairy stock. I'd rather go to the fairy than the devil. But hey, that's me. The returning of the original child may be affected by making the changeling laugh or by torturing it. This latter belief was responsible for numerous cases of actual child abuse. The existence of changelings is also to believe to stem from the idea that infants are suspect susceptible to demonic possession, which is why they say, you know, like kids can see ghosts because their eyes are lit. They're more, like, open to stuff like that. Like, the time my oldest saw a black shadow in his room, and he doesn't stop talking about it, and it freaks me out every time. In the Medieval Chronicles by Ralph of Kanji Shao and other, and other sources, the fairies are said expressively to prey upon unbaptized children, which, if this is ever true, my children would be screwed because they're not baptized. And they're not getting baptized. But, oh wow, I didn't think it was that small. So basically in um, Supernatural, the changeling, like, they like suck, they leave like a mark on the back of their neck, right? And they're like these needy children in it. And then the parents are like, oh my god, we can't leave. The children won't leave me alone. Like, what the heck? <laughs> and, uh... Then they see, they see the mark on the back of their neck, and they're like, oh my gosh. It's not my child. <clears throat> Alright, so let's see a little bit more. Okay, yep, so... Basically, if the fairies take it, Back to the realm of the fairies, it'll be raised and put to work. While the creature's left behind, and it, and it usually sickens and dies, so they want to, you know, live out their life. Although some actually may live to adulthood, they are always through, uh, they are always thought to be strange by the locals. Some stories about changeling describe them as looking like ugly and old and ugly and old little men <laughs> that's rude <laughs> oh <laughs> so obviously you can make this distinguish distinguishing them from your average baby difficult I'm not I'm sure you love your kid but let's be honest um, this thing says most babies are horrifyingly strange when they are born my kids look cute I don't know what they're talking about now imagine if they were to fail to gain weight because of poverty or a condition the parents aren't aware of. Um, other descriptions include babies with abnormally sized body parts or facial features. Basically any detect any defect could be a sign that a fairy took your baby. So you know if you just have stuff like that and you're like this isn't what my baby looked like, it's a change link. So you guys want to know how to defeat a changeling? Here's some 
here's some methods to get a changeling to leave their home while retrieving their own baby. First, the parents could try to beat the false baby. Apparently, it cries for suffering and would summon the fairies back to rescue, back to rescue their family and return the human child. Other forms of violence were prescribed like drowning them or leaving them alone in the woods to be taken by their family or eaten wolves. Parents who decided not to be their children, thank God, might try to spook the fairy away, threatening to scald it with a hot poker or boil it into soup. Or boil it in a soup pot were two classic examples of good ways to coax the changeling to leave. While most mentally scarring their own children for life, if they are wrong. Agreed. Otherwise, you can use objects or symbols um, hated by fairies, which are like iron and crosses. And was another way to kick them out of the homes. The least aggressive methods to get a changeling out was to, you know, reveal or reveal its name or its age. Usually this involved shocking it to do by something confusing or unexpected. A mother might crack eggs and throw it inside the insides away while putting the shells in the soup pot. The point was to get the kid in to get the kid to say, "Well, I insert fairy name. Haven't seen such a sight in all my insert absurdly long not baby years." Then the changeling would the changeling would be whisked away and the child will be returned. That's pretty cool. Oh, man. Well, guys. That is our urban legends for the tech for the night. You can follow my follow me on Instagram at just a girl in true crime. You can send me a Gmail at just a girl in true crime at gmail.com. You can what else? Uh you can follow the Facebook page at just a girl in true crime. Um, I uploaded a YouTube video, and my YouTube channel is obviously the same, just a grown true crime. And we talked about our first case way back when, um, Colleen Stan, a.k.a. the girl in the box. And I think that's it. Um, I forget who I was going to do, but I'm going to find his name. So I think it's Thomas something. Somebody I've never heard of who we're going to do. But I hope you enjoyed our Urban Legends. I hope you guys have a great weekend, holiday, wherever you're from. Keep the support up because I love it. And remember, I almost said this wrong. I almost said spread hate, not love. But it's spread love, not hate. And that's it for me today, tonight, guys. Ooh, that was a long episode. And I'll be talking to you guys tomorrow or Saturday. 